fairy tales frequently began once upon a time or a long time ago or in a galaxy far, far away. And these fairy tales conjure up far-off places and daring sword fights and magic spells, a prince in disguise, to quote from Belle in Beauty and the Beast. These fairy tales can be Disney spectaculars featuring kings and queens and commoners who rise above their station. And fairy tale stories of kings and queens They have the perfect McDonald's Happy Meal tie-ins. They can cause every girl in my first grade class to dress up as a princess. Well, every girl except for one. I chose to dress up as a queen so I could boss all the other princesses around. Today, we celebrate the Holy Day of Christ the King Sunday. This Feast of Christ the King was formalized in the 20th century as the last Sunday of the Christian year, immediately before Advent and our preparations for Christmas. Catholics and Protestants in the 1920s and 30s wanted to challenge the rising nationalisms around the world and to remind us that God comes before country. Now, In the decades that followed, I'm not sure how effective Christ the King Sunday has been in doing this. As we talk about kings and queens, today we have to remember that, well, most of the world's monarchies are constitutional monarchies, meaning that the sovereign's power is limited. The king or queen is bound by a constitution and other limits on their power. But... With the decline of absolute monarchies, we now see dictators being far more common than absolute monarchs. The word king seems to be more relegated to fairy tales. And calling it Christ the King Sunday seems to be innocuous because king is a metaphor for how great and wonderful God is. It would be far worse to call this Christ the Dictator Sunday. The book of Revelation clearly states that this king, Christ the King, made us a people into a kingdom. And so the kingdom of Christ, the King Christ, is not about ruling over a territory or land. Rather, it's about ruling over a people. And the focus on Jesus the king making us a kingdom can be compared to the Belgian monarchy. Before you misquote me, I'm not saying that the king of the Belgians is Jesus Christ, but rather that the Belgian head of state is the only monarch in the world who is defined by ruling over a people rather than a territory. He is titled king of the Belgians, rather than king of Belgium. Jesus is a king somewhat like that. Jesus is a king who has made us, a people, into a kingdom. Jesus created the world and all that is in it, and he's not interested in expanding territorially 
or invading Poland or closing off borders or claiming manifest destiny or bringing nukes into the South China Sea. Instead, Jesus the King is all about the people as the kingdom. And this echoes the book of Exodus where God insists, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. God washes the Israelites clean from their sin and makes them a holy kingdom. And this blessing, this kingdom, expands beyond Israel in the New Testament. Glory and strength to Christ proclaims the book of Revelation. Christ who loves us, who blood-washed our sins from our lives, who made us a kingdom, priest for his Father forever. This is the priesthood of all believers. The kingdom is the people. This kingdom is a people that Jesus, the King, ushers us into without waiting for us to fill out the proper paperwork or prove that we deserve it. There's no citizenship test for Jesus' kingdom. If you want in, you're in. Now, there are expectations of citizenship, love and peace and holiness and righteousness and justice and sacrifice. And there are also perks of citizenship, joy and delight and abundant life both now and in the world to come. But there's no security and no border. No one is voting on whether we're coming in. No one is calling us invaders. No one is afraid that welcoming new citizens will negatively affect the kingdom of God. When God welcomes new people into God's kingdom, there is only excitement and never fear. And as we celebrated a baptism this morning, we know some of that, that excitement. No one is fearful of what it means to have a new baby be part of God's kingdom this day. When we be, we're baptized, we become citizens of God's kingdom. And the earth is no longer our only home. If we're baptized as babies, we're carried around the sanctuary, far from the people who gave us birth and are promising to love us and raise us and nurture us, because suddenly our birth family is no longer our only family. And our wealth is no longer our worth, and our country and politics are no longer our identities. Our next-door neighbors are no longer the only ones we have to love. Our mistakes are no longer what define us. But we are citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's household. In the words of Revelation 5, Jesus has ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation— Jesus has made them to be a kingdom and priest, serving our God, and they will reign on earth. But even if we focus on Jesus the King as the one who is making us a people into a kingdom, rather than imitating territorial ambitions of nation-states, there are still some problems with kingdom language. When we use the word kingdom, are we automatically referring to a hierarchy that imitates patriarchal, colonial, and economic structures of oppression? Are those Happy Meal, king and queen, and prince and princess tie-ins as innocuous as they seem? 
Are we reinforcing hierarchies in our world by talking about the kingdom of God? Perhaps you've seen the images of the great chain of being in the Middle Ages, in which every spiritual and material object is ordered in hierarchical fashion. God on top. And I had to make a note to make sure my hand is really high up here because we've got a long way to go. God on top, then angels, then fallen angels, then stars, then moon, then kings, then nobles, then commoners, then wild animals, then domesticated animals, then plants, no, sorry, then trees, then plants, then precious stones, and I can't bend over anymore, but dirt's at the bottom. Each category is further subdivided, so that within angels, the seraphim are better than the cherubim, and within minerals, gold is better than silver, and within humanity, rulers are better than subjects, and men are better than women, and so-called civilized people are better than uncivilized. With a worldview like this, sanctioned by God, or so it seems, feudalism was certainly going to stay intact. Why would anyone rebel when to defy the earthly king was to defy God? King James I of England put it like this, The state of monarchy is the most supreme thing upon earth. For kings are not only God's lieutenants upon earth and sit upon God's throne, but even by God himself, the kings are called gods. Now, kings were not the only ones who defended this divine right of kings. Anyone who benefited from the current order will rush to defend it and protect it, even if they're not the ones right at the top of the chain of being. Martin Luther, who emphasized God's grace to all people, regardless of wealth and ability to buy indulgences, he refused to see the political implications of his theology. So when poor people rose up in rebellion in the German Peasants' War in the 1500s, Luther published a pamphlet whose title reveals it all. Against the murderous, thieving hordes of peasants. Luther was not about to anger the nobility who had supported him. Maintaining current structures always benefits the people who are higher up in that chain of being within that structure. Now, over time, the West began to slowly and officially abandon this great chain of being image, where all of the created order is ordered from highest to lowest, best to worst, first to last. And you will rarely see the chain of being image explicitly reproduced today. Instead, this sort of ranking has remained just the way things are. It's normal to us that we celebrate pilgrims coming to North America and then whitewash what happened to the people who were already here. It's normal to us that certain schools or regions are better than other schools and that those differences just happen to correspond to race and class. 
it's normal that some people live on reservations and see themselves stereotyped and caricatured and unable to get IDs with physical addresses in order to vote. But heaven forbid that this normal is part of the colonial legacy of expanding territory and conquering other peoples and justifying it to ourselves and then claiming that, well, it happened so long ago in the past that there's no need to return the land now, and that's impractical anyway. In the meantime, those of us who benefit from colonial legacies appropriate indigenous images to carry on the chain of being concepts, if not design, that we imported. Robin R.R. Gray, a Shimshon of the Northwest Coast First Nations, this explains the offensive phrase, low man on the totem pole, as follows. Over the past half century, the phrase low man on the totem pole has been used in an attempt to communicate a sense of disempowerment and hierarchy. This phrase is especially prevalent in corporate culture, but occurs in everyday talk between friends and peers. Those who use this phrase imply that they know totem poles to be vertical columns that organize images in a linear hierarchy. But totem poles were never created to communicate hierarchy in any sense of the term. Totem poles commemorate events like potlatches, strengthen names, tell stories, signify place, document history, assert rights, communicate origins, remind descendants of our laws, and teach contemporary artists the traditional art form. Essentially, non-indigenous ways of knowing and being have been superimposed upon the totem pole through discourse, thereby redefining totem poles in non-indigenous terms and robbing them of their indigenous meaning and context." End quote. When we project onto other cultures our own ingrained hierarchies, we continue the same problem of medieval and early modern Christians. This image of the great chain of being in which there is a hierarchy from top to bottom. And we struggle to increase our place on it. And heaven forbid we ever go lower. But that problem of medieval and early modern Christians was the same problem that Roman leaders had with Jesus. Are you a king? They asked. Are you going to challenge us in this territory? Are you going to try to take over this area that we rule, this people that we rule? And Jesus responded, My kingdom doesn't consist of what you see around you. If it did, my followers would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the authorities. But I'm not that kind of king. Not the world's kind of a king. And I love that he said this. If my kingdom were what you see around you, my followers would fight. Because just a few verses earlier... Simon Peter, Jesus' follower, had drawn a sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus had said to Peter, Put your sword back 
into its sheath. Because Jesus was here to make a people his kingdom, not to conquer land and territory. Jesus is not the kind of king that we know or expect. And so as God's people, as people made into God's kingdom, let us cast off the vestiges of the chain of being. Let us put away our swords. And let us worship the God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive. Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, who made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Amen.